Romans chapter 1, verse 18 is our text for today. This is the eighth sermon in a series through the New Testament book of Romans, and today's message is 37 handwritten pages. Title of the sermon today is Anger and Wrath, Sure Condemnation. Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, and as I preach today, as I preach every Sunday, please always keep in mind that God loves you. Here's the text of Scripture for today, Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Father in heaven, I would ask please that you would enable me this morning not only to teach on the subject of the wrath of God, but I pray, dear God, that there would be a result from this which would cause us to be very sober and for each to contemplate this subject as it relates to them. Lord, for those of us that know you, I pray that it will cause us to rejoice, but also to remember that, Lord, we were once under your wrath, but you delivered us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then, Father, we would also ask today for those who are currently under your wrath, the Lord, that there would be a change, that there would be, Lord, a difference in our heart and a different difference in our thinking. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name to, Lord, see the conversion of sinners today who would turn from sin to Christ and thus to avoid your wrath. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There's no outline in the message today. This is just going to be a series of observations from Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, we're just going to be looking at several things concerning the subject of the wrath of God. Uh, the wrath of God is a very challenging subject to discuss, especially on Palm Sunday. Uh, the reason that I say that is because you probably did not come today expecting on Palm Sunday to hear a sub sermon on the wrath of God. But interestingly, when we look at the wrath of God, uh, it is a subject which was on the mind of Jesus Christ on Palm Sunday. Turn back to the book of Luke, chapter 19, and look at his description of the triumphal entry. And notice in verses 41 through 44 uh, what Jesus did and what Jesus thought and what his emotions were on that Palm Sunday. And when he, Jesus, this is Luke 19, 41, and when he, Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come, now he's about to talk about the days of wrath and vengeance, uh, A.D. 70, and God pouring out his wrath on the nation of Israel in Jerusalem. For the days will come upon you when your enemies, that is the Romans, will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, that is the wrath of God, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone, this is speaking about the temple, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not know that the Messiah had come. And so even on Palm Sunday, the subject of the wrath of God was present. 
For those of you that are visiting today, let me explain why the wrath of God is our main concentration this morning. Uh, we are studying the New Testament book of Romans verse by verse. And today we happen to be studying, we happen to be studying uh, Romans 1.18, which speaks about the wrath of God. Now, I didn't choose this passage randomly. Uh, I didn't pick this verse intentionally. This just happens to be where we are in our journey through the book of Romans. Uh, sadly, there are some pastors who really enjoy speaking on the wrath of God. Uh, I have never understood that. I understand that it is necessary to speak on the wrath of God, but uh, it, it, I, it really bothers me that some people enjoy speaking on it just rather flippantly. Uh, other people uh, really avoid the wrath of God at all cost. Uh, this evidenced by the fact that there's never a mention of the wrath of God in any of their sermons. Uh, perhaps they will assume that the congregation will be offended or they will assume that they themselves will not be well-liked or they assume that visitors will not come back to the church if the sermon is about hell. Or maybe they feel that the most effective way to evangelize a modern-day American is to catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. Or maybe they just never get around to preaching on the wrath of God because, after all, the Bible is a big book of 1,189 chapters, and there are just other topics that they can talk on. Well, I myself, on occasion, have felt a temptation to avoid speaking on the wrath of God. I remember one instance in particular. It was in June of the year 2000. Uh, for several months, I had been trying to invite a friend of mine by the name of Eric DeJoya to come to church. His uh, son was on my Little League team. Uh, he had never been to church. He'd never heard the gospel. And so after inviting him for several months, he decides to show up on one Sunday in June of the year 2000. And wouldn't you know, on that particular Sunday, my text that day was, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Neither fornicators nor adulterers nor so on and so forth will inherit the kingdom of God. And I just remember standing in my office before the service, seeing him sit out here and saying to myself, maybe I should just reach in my filing cabinet and pull out another sermon I just have been trying so hard to get him here, and here today, this is the message that he's going to listen to. Well, um, as Providence would have it, uh, Eric did come back to church, and two and a half months later, he did end up getting saved. But he said of that particular day, he said, you know, after I heard that sermon, um, I didn't believe that there was a hell, but I thought to myself, if there is one, I'm sure going there. So it had some effect on him. All that to say, I, 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 like all other preachers, sometimes want to avoid this subject. So I understand why people might want to shy away from it. And, and so hell is a funny topic, not funny ha-ha, but it's strange in that some people love to preach it and some people avoid it altogether. Well, what should our approach be? Our approach should be biblical. Uh, there is a God. This God has chosen to communicate through his word and we simply need to look at the Word, and what the Word says is what God says. And so, as I, as a preacher, have picked a book, this time it happens to be Romans, and I'm making my way through the book, and we come on the verse which speaks of the wrath of God, and if that happens to be on Palm Sunday, that happens to be on Palm Sunday. But just go through a book, whether you are a preacher or just a Bible reader, and what God says is what God says, 
and we leave the results up to him. So we're going to be looking at one verse today, Romans 1.18, but before we do, I want to give a statistical analysis of how the word wrath is used in the Bible. In the Old Testament, the word wrath appears 298 times. Of those 298 times, 223 refer to the wrath of God. All of the other instances refer to the wrath of man. Usually all of the references to the wrath of God do not speak about the final judgment, but they speak about some sort of a judgment in the here and now. For example, it will say something like the children of Israel provoked God to wrath and he raised up an army, whether it would be the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Philistines, and they would come against the people of God. Or it would speak about a hurricane, not a hurricane, but a famine or, or something of that nature, a natural disaster whereby the wrath of God was revealed. Uh, in, the, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, uses the word wrath in all of his 13 books a total of 21 times. And 18 of those times refer to the wrath of God, and most of those refer to the final judgment. In the rest of the New Testament, meaning what has been written not by the Apostle Paul, the, wrath, the word wrath appears 15 times, and 12 of them refer to the wrath of God. So you put all of these stats together, and here's what you come up with. Altogether, there are 334 usages of the word wrath in the Bible, and 253 of them refer to the wrath of God. 253. Now, the reason I give you this statistical analysis is to point out that we cannot dismiss the wrath of God as just a fringe topic in the Bible, something that is obscure and only gets mentioned every now and again. God has communicated abundantly that his character is one of wrath. And even in the book of Romans, there is a frequent repetition of this word. It appears 12 times. Well, the first one of those is in chapter 1, verse 18. And as I said, our approach today is not going to be to have an outline. I'm just going to make a series of observations um, about this verse, and I'm not even going to enumerate them. Okay, first of all, I think I just enumerated. Uh, uh, first of all, please notice when the wrath of God is brought up. It is brought up at the beginning of Paul's explanation of the gospel. You'll remember that the book of Romans was written by Paul in about the year A.D. 57. He's writing to a group of Christians in Rome made up of Jews and Gentiles, and these Jews and Gentiles were having trouble understanding one another, and Paul wants to clarify those misunderstandings. But before he even gets into that, he establishes his own credibility by giving them the gospel. And the gospel that Paul writes out is chapters 1 through 8. Now, so far in the book of Romans, and we've only covered 17 verses, so far Paul has said some wonderful things about the gospel, but he has not yet told us what the gospel is. He's going to do that in chapters 1 through 8, but he hasn't gotten to it yet. So far he has told us that the gospel is of God, uh, that it was foretold in the Old Testament, that it is concerning the Son of God. Paul was ready to preach it, that it is the power of God unto salvation, and in it the righteousness of God is revealed. But he hasn't told us yet what the gospel is. That is what he begins in chapter 118. This is his starting point. He leads off 
his description of what the gospel is with the wrath of God when he brings it up right at the start. Paul doesn't start his gospel presentation with he gets us or God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He doesn't start off by telling us the benefits of the gospel. He doesn't start off with a testimonial of what the gospel has done for him. He doesn't even speak about the love of God. He doesn't speak about how the gospel is fulfillment in our lives. The first subject in this systematic unfolding of the gospel is God's wrath. Martin Lloyd-Jones makes note of Paul leading off with this subject, and he was so impressed with Paul's strategy that he writes, what this man Paul does teaches us as much as what he says. The apostle is interested in the first place in men's relationship to God, in their standing in the sight of God, in their eternal destiny face-to-face with God. The gospel was never man-centered. It was always invariably God-centered. And so you see, he's coming right out of the gates with the wrath of God. I think this is a convicting word for evangelists who lead with or who stress God wants you to be happy or Jesus will solve all of your problems or you can have your best life now. That is not the approach of the Apostle Paul. It's true that the fruit of the Spirit is joy, but that is not the fundamental reason why we need Jesus. We need Jesus to save us from the wrath of God. That is why Paul puts it up front. Next, I want you to notice to whom this verse applies. It applies to everyone without exception. We know that from the word all. It is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Many Bible commentators think that in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, Paul starts to talk about the sin of the Gentiles. And he'll do that to the end, till the end of chapter 1. Then when he gets to chapter 2, he'll talk about the sin of the Jews. And I would say that I agree with that, generally speaking, but I want to note that chapter 1, verse 18 is not just about Gentiles. It is all ungodliness. All have sinned, sinned, and therefore it is a universal application. This verse applies to Jews and to Gentiles, to Muslims, to atheists, to Catholics, to Protestants, to everyone, including you, including me. Why? Everybody can relate because all have sinned. The next observation is slightly more complicated, and I want you to notice how Paul communicates this, and that is through a connecting word and parallelism. The reason I say parallelism is because the structure of verse 17 is the same as the structure of verse 18. Look at 17 and 18 together. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Is revealed. Hang on to that. What is it? Well, it's from faith for faith, and here's the scriptural substantiation for that. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He goes then into verse 18, and the structure is identical. For, and that word for can be translated as because, because the wrath of God is revealed. You see that the gospel in verse 17 is revealed. You see in verse 18 that the wrath of God is revealed. 
from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so you have this connection between 17 and 18, which says that 17 informs 18 and 18 informs informs 17 by that connecting word for and by the parallelism of the is revealed in both verses. What does all of that mean? It's just not something that is, is, is nice to look at in its structure in the Greek language, But what Paul is doing is he is giving us the reason why we need the gospel. The reason why we need the gospel and we accept it by faith is because of the wrath of God. Michael Bird puts it this way. It looks to me as if the proximity and parallel between the revelation of righteousness in the gospel, that's verse 17, and the revelation of wrath, that's verse 18 from heaven, indicate that God's gospel determines the purpose for God's wrath. It is under the shadow of divine wrath that the good news of God's grace, mercy, and salvation appear all the more unlikely, entirely unmerited, and even scandalous, end quote. And I hope you got what he meant there. The wrath of God is what makes the saving gospel of Jesus shine so much brighter. When we say we're saved, I guess you have to ask the question, saved from what? Like, why? If, if there is no wrath from God, what then is the value of salvation? But when you bring the wrath of God into it, that is when the gospel seems so much more glorious and it is indeed so much more valuable. So I hope you're with me so far. Wrath is a biblical subject. Paul opens with it, comes right out of the gates with it. It applies to everyone, and it tells us why the gospel is so powerful and beautiful. Which brings us to the next observation, and that is what the verse says. What does the verse say? The verse says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. I want to camp out for a little while now on these words, from heaven. From heaven could be referring to Genesis 19 sort of as a word picture uh, describing uh, how God reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, fire and and brimstone. Um, Maybe the from heaven, because that's the same phraseology from Genesis 19 is what Paul has in mind now. That's what all the smart guys think. I'm not sure if they're right. Or maybe from heaven just means from God. I'm not really sure. But in either case, please understand, this is referring to active divine wrath. This is not lady luck or bad luck, or this is not mother nature or the way that the cookie crumbles. Uh, This is from heaven. This is God himself acting in wrath. And for many, this from heaven is a really hard concept to believe. The atheist uh, is really hard time accepting the wrath of God in the same way that I have trouble accepting the kindness of the Easter Bunny. I mean, you can you can extol the kindness of the Easter Bunny all you want, but I'm not going to believe that the Easter Bunny is kind, seeing as how I do not believe that the Easter Bunny even exists. Some people are atheists. They do not even believe that God exists, and as such, if God doesn't exist, then neither does his wrath. There are others who reject this idea of wrath from heaven, because they believe that it is barbaric and that it is archaic. 
And they say, here's how the Bible was put together. You have some primitive writers who invented the idea of a wrathful God in order to frighten and to manipulate and to control and to steal from ignorant people. Let me just stop right now. This is not, this doesn't have anything to do with my sermon, but I just want to say this. There is no way that we as sinful people would ever on our own come up with the concept of a deity who was wrathful. Like if I was inventing God, he in my invention would not be a wrathful God. But that's a side point. But what they say is, here's why you have a wrathful God in the Bible. People have invented this in order to keep other people in line and to threaten them with the wrath of God. Now, although these people might be theist in that they believe in the existence of God, they cannot accept that God is angry with sinners. And so in this particular case, they believe some parts of the Bible, but not other parts of the Bible. They certainly can't believe that God is a God of wrath. Closely related to this is the idea that God is love, and since God is love and Jesus is gentle, and and therefore it is inconceivable that our kind Father uh, who keeps us fed every day, and our gentle Jesus, who taught us to turn the other cheek, would ever exercise wrath from heaven. It is just inconsistent with their character in the mind of these people. And so what they will do is they will have an incomplete reading of Scripture, or they will pick and choose in smorgasbord style verses in the Bible which apply to their preconceived ideas of God. And so what I will do is I will read the Bible. If I like what I read about God, then I will say that that is what God is like. If I don't like what I read about God, well, then I will dismiss that. It is a smorgasbord approach. Now, for the record, Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. And Jesus talked more about hell than any other person in the Bible. And then there's the person, and this is the most dangerous one, who theologically believes in the wrath of God. And you say to them, do you believe that there is a God? Oh, absolutely. Do you believe that God has expressed himself in the pages of Holy Scripture? Without a doubt. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Yes. Do you believe that the Bible is true, every word of it? So then you do believe in the wrath of God. Yes, how could you not believe in the wrath of God? It's all over the Bible. So you believe that God is a God of wrath. Yes, do you believe that God will exercise that wrath? A hundred percent. Do you love Jesus and are you following him? No. So for them, the wrath of God is doctrinal. It is theoretical. It is educational. It is in no way real. You see, the reality is they don't actually believe in the wrath of God. For if you knew what the wrath, if you knew who God was and you knew what the wrath of God was and you thought the God, the wrath of God was on you and you really believed that, you would be screaming at the top of your lungs for him to have mercy upon you. You would be frantically, maniacally looking for mercy if you actually believed in the wrath of God. So these people are very dangerous in that they will tell you that they believe that there is a hell, and either they don't fear going there or they don't give it much thought, or it really doesn't apply to them. They've never put it all together. Now, I can understand why people would be reluctant to meditate on the subject of the wrath of God. I understand how people will do whatever they can to dismiss this from their thought. 
whether it is atheism or selective Bible reading or theological liberalism or imbalanced view of God's love or just sticking your head in the stand. I understand why you do not want to think about this. I understand why you do not want to hear about this on Palm Sunday of all days because it is really difficult for the natural man left to himself to think about the subject of the wrath of God for a sustained period of time. You take any other subject, I don't know, money, pride, greed, sex, music, marriage, love, friendship, cooking, education, politics, anything. And you can take one of those subjects and you can think about it indefinitely, effortlessly, just on and on and on. Take the subject of the wrath of God. Have you ever sat for a sustained period of time and just thought and thought and thought and meditated on the wrath of God. You're not going to. It's not our natural inclination to think about it. It certainly is not our natural inclination to think about it concerning ourselves. And the reason why we treat the subject so flippantly, whether on the one hand it is an atheist or at the other extreme it's someone who fully believes in it, but yet does not believe in Christ, and everyone in between. The reason why it is not gripping us right now is because we don't know who we're dealing with. We don't know who we're dealing with. Why, in in the 1740s, when Jonathan Edwards was preaching, did people in Enfield, Connecticut, and in Northampton, Massachusetts, why in the middle of his sermon did people get up and fall down on their knees and start crying out for God to have mercy upon them? Because God, in an act of kindness, brought revival in the form of impressing the truth of his wrath upon people, sinners in the hands of an angry God. 25 years ago, We were in Key Biscayne, Florida at the beach on a beautiful January afternoon. Uh, We parked, we were spreading out our blankets, we were looking at the calm water, and all over the calm water were floating some beautiful blue balloons. And my six-year-old son, Parker, confidently got in the water close to one of those beautiful blue balloons. Moments later, he came running out of the sea, screaming louder than he has ever screamed. And that's really something, if if you know Parker. You see, it wasn't a balloon. It was a Portuguese man of war. The lifeguards called the ambulance immediately. The paramedics came, and eventually he was fine. But the description that the paramedics gave and that the lifeguards gave that day was that when one gets the tentacles of the Portuguese men of war wrapped around one of their limbs or across their chest or on their back. It is as if an electric wire is attached to you, giving you a shock, but the shock does not go away. It is a like a relentless, violent electric shock that was going through his body. Why did he walk into the water over by these balloons, and I'm telling you, they looked like balloons. Why did he do it? He didn't know what he was dealing with. 
we have no idea what we are dealing with when we are dealing with Almighty God. We need to contemplate the power of God's wrath. And we need to think about this subject seriously. We would all do well to look at what the Bible says and to actually carefully meditate on this. But for now, what I want you to note is that it is from heaven, which means that it is from God. Because the more powerful a person is, the more seriously we should contemplate their wrath. You know that person who has like no power, no influence, uh, nobody ever really listens to anything that they have to say, and they get angry. You know, and they're they're kind of a they're kind of an annoyance. But you're not going to lose any sleep because they can't really do anything to hurt you. You know that other person in your life. You know the person that I'm talking about. You're going to do everything you can to make sure that that person doesn't get angry. And I'm speaking figuratively here now when I say, because when they do get angry, there will be hell to pay. That person, you know the person that I'm talking about. You're going to step gingerly around that person because they have so much more power and more influence in your life. Now think about who God is. He's the creator of heaven and earth who spoke the universe into existence. He sustains the universe by the word of his power. He is omnipotent. He is God Almighty. Uh, He has power to destroy both soul and body in hell. He is all-powerful. You don't want to experience his wrath. The next thing that I want you to notice about what the Bible says or what the verse says is that God's wrath is is presently revealed. Look at the verse again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. It doesn't say that it will be revealed in the future, although it will, but what it says is that it is. Now, how are we to understand verse 18? Well, the answer to that is we are to look at the parallelism between verse 17 and verse 18, And notice that in both verses, there is the phrase, is revealed. In 17, for in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Stop right there. What is the revelation of the righteousness of God as described in verse 17? We looked at it last week, so I don't want to spend too much time on it this week. But what it is, is the imputed righteousness or the righteousness of God, which he gives to you by faith. What are the benefits of that? The benefits are both present and future. They are present in that you are justified now and that you possess the righteousness of God right now by faith. And that doesn't, is that, that is not something which is temporary, but it is something which is permanent, which is going to help you in judgment, on the judgment day, and it's going to help you throughout eternity. You are justified now, and you will be justified forever. It happens now, it is revealed now, but its benefits go on throughout eternity. In the same way, the wrath of God is currently, right now, as we speak, revealed from heaven or from God, and there are manifestations of that right now, and his disposition toward us right now 
if we are not in Christ, is one of anger. So there is wrath from God right now. And in the same way, it is not only in the here and now, but it is revealed from heaven and will have effects throughout eternity. Let me give you scriptural proof of this. God is currently displeased with the ungodly. Psalm 711, God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day that is present. Before someone is saved, look at their condition. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In other words, before we were saved, the wrath of God was upon us. But it is not only something which is upon the unsaved right now. It is something which will carry on to the judgment day and into the future. This is what Romans 2.5 says. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath, that is the final judgment, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So I hope that you're with me so far. The wrath of God is from heaven, which means it's from God, and it is revealed now, but it has an eternal impact. Which brings us to our next and to our final question, and that is why? Why is the wrath of God necessary? Is it actually righteous? Is it actually just? And the answer obviously is yes, and the biblical answer is yes. But I want to raise the question concerning the justice or the necessity of the wrath of God, because I know that some of you today might be struggling with the concept of the wrath of God. Again, you might be one of these people who would never admit that you're struggling with the concept of the wrath of God because you're in the midst of a group of other people who actually do, in reality, believe in the wrath of God and they accept it as a good and righteous thing. But you might have a problem with it, a problem that you're not even admitting. Now, I am not apologizing for God. Again, I'm not trying to get him off the hook. I am not ashamed of the wrath of God. But I just want to make sure that you understand the wrath of God biblically and that you are not developing thoughts concerning the wrath of God experientially or emotionally. I want to make sure that you do not equate human wrath that you have experienced with the just, righteous anger and wrath of God. Because the truth of the matter is, we who live in a fallen world have all of our lives been around angry people who have soured and who have distorted our view of righteous indignation. Maybe it was a father who had an unpredictable mean streak, who would beat you or humiliate you. Some of you, some of you maybe have a boss who has a short fuse, or, 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 or you have a coworker who just unpredictably explodes. Or, or ladies, maybe you have an abusive husband, or men, maybe you have an abusive wife because you know women do sometimes hit men. If you've played sports, maybe you have had angry coaches. Or if you have been a parent, you know that the wrath of the child is sometimes unbearable. Customers can be nasty. Road rage is real. And even within your own heart, 
you have experienced a boiling point and you have expressed your own vengeance. And after you express your own vengeance upon someone, it, it just leaves you feeling rotten. Why do you feel rotten? You know, they, like, like, like people will say, you know, if I, if I could just get even, I don't get angry, I just get even. Well, after you get even, do you really feel any better? No, you don't feel any better. The reason you don't feel any better is because a pound of flesh tastes like a pound of flesh. There's nothing sweet about it. It never produces righteousness. It never produces good. It's never joyful. It always leaves you sad, and it always leaves everybody else sad. We have never experienced the righteous, unrighteous indignation of man in a sweet way. James chapter 1, verse 20 says that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And because our experience with wrath in this fallen world is always ugly, and I'm not trying to get all psychological on you here. I'm just, I'm just saying this is just kind of the way it is. Because our experience with wrath in the here and now is always ugly, we sometimes tend to envision God as a grumpy old man whose nerves have worn thin, and you better keep your distance from him. You better stay in line or, or he's going to hurt you. Don't irritate him. Don't mess with him. You're not really sure what he's going to do. And all of this is a gross distortion of God's righteous indignation and his just vengeance. Now, please don't get me wrong. His wrath is more fierce than anything that I'm capable of describing. But his wrath is not arbitrary. It is not due to moodiness. It is not unfair. He is not quick-tempered. In fact, he's just the opposite. It says in Psalm 103, verse 8, that he is slow to anger. An evidence that you and I are alive in this very room right now is evidence that God is slow to anger, the fact that we are not in hell. Now, God is a God of wrath, but his anger looks nothing like anything that you have ever experienced in your heart, and it is unlike anything that you have ever felt inflicted on you by someone else. The anger and justice and wrath of God is just. It's not arbitrary. It's holy. When I give a gospel presentation, the first thing I do is I tell people there are six things you need to know about God. He is a creator, a lawgiver, and a judge. And he will judge you, not based upon whether your good has outweighed your bad or how you compare to other people or on the curb or how hard you have tried, but he will judge you based upon his own character. And the fourth attribute that I tell them about God is that he is holy. And what that means is that he is 100% pure. And since he is 100% pure, he cannot tolerate sin. And therefore, all one must do in order to be disqualified from entering into God's heaven is to have one sin on their record at any time during the course of their entire life. He is holy. And understanding the holiness of God, not only who he is in and of himself, but what he requires is to understand the justice of God, that he must punish sin. And he will punish sin. And you don't want a God who is unfair, who will just punish some and not others. You want a just and a righteous God, and that is who he is. It's all going to be fair. And notice from our verse why he will do it. Why 
he will do it. For Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, here we go, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Let's take this verse apart. When it speaks about ungodliness or all ungodliness, ungodliness speaks about our relationship with God, our vertical relationship with Him, and it talks about a lack of reverence for God. When it speaks about unrighteousness or wickedness, this is speaking about violations which we commit against one another. And so, for example, taking God's name in vain or being unthankful, that is ungodly. Whereas stealing or committing adultery or lying, that is wickedness or unrighteousness. And so, why does God judge sins that we commit against one another? I mean, if they're not directly against him, why, like if I steal from you, why would God judge me for that? The reason is, is because you are an image bearer of God. So any sin you commit against a fellow human being is to commit a sin against God because we are all image bearers of God. That's why I believe in capital punishment. That's why the Bible says there should be capital punishment. Genesis 9, 6. You take somebody's life, your life should be taken. Why? Because the person that you have killed is an image bearer of God. And so you take the ungodliness that you commit and the wickedness or the unrighteousness that you commit and, 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 and you keep doing it. And, and Romans 1, 19 through 32 through the end of the chapter is going to spell that out in detail. But for right now, you know what sin is and you know that you do it. But here's where it gets worse. Not only do we do these things, like, like, can we just be honest with one another for, for just a minute? You do not honor God the way that you should honor God. You don't thank him the way that you should thank him. You, 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 do, you do disrespect him. You do do things to other people. You think bad thoughts about them. You say bad things about them. You take things that belong to them. There's adultery. There's homosexuality. There's stealing. There's all kinds of sins which we commit against one another. We sin against him. We sin against one another. I, I, like, I, I hope you know that, 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 that this is us. This is what we do. Here's where it gets worse. Look in the verse. All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Not only do we do these things, but where it gets worse is that we try to suppress it after we have done it. Now, why when somebody does something wrong, do they immediately know that they have done something wrong? And why do they, to varying degrees, but why do they feel bad about it? And I'm talking about a Christian who has been to seminary, who studied the Bible beginning to end and has great light. And I'm talking also about someone who has never even seen a Bible or heard the name Jesus they have no idea what the law of God is, but yet they do something that is wrong. Why do they feel something bad? And everybody in between. The reason why is because you are not an animal. You have been told in your science class that you are an animal, but you're not an animal. You are a unique creation of God. You're an image bearer of God. 
and you possess a conscience. You might not possess a lot of knowledge about the Word of God, but you do possess a conscience. And here's what you do with that conscience. And here's what I do with that conscience. We are constantly taking the needle and the syringe, and we are injecting Novocaine into our conscience, and we are trying to numb it or to suppress it, to hold it down. Our natural tendency is not to sin and then immediately step into the light and say, look what I did. I was wrong. That's not your natural tendency. It goes all the way back to the, of the Garden of Eden. Adam takes the fruit. He eats it. He gives it to her wife. She eats it. They realize they have sinned. What do they do immediately? They go running to God. No. The first thing they do is they hide naked behind a bush. That is what we do. We sin and then we hide. We sin and then we suppress. Our natural tendency is not to confess it and to make restitution for it and to seek forgiveness, but it is to take practical steps to cover it up. David sleeps with Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. His first thing that he tries to do is to cover it up by killing her husband and committing an obstruction of justice. That is, that's just the way we are. We make practical steps to cover our sin. We don't make practical steps not to repeat our sin. When I do something wrong, either against God or against my fellow man, my first response is to have a conversation with myself and to acquit myself, to get myself off the hook, or to excuse myself, or to explain to myself why it was permissible for me to do this thing or to indulge in that sinful pleasure. Why? Because I have earned it. I don't know. You can, you can come up with as many reasons as you want. You know the conversation that you have with yourself. Probably your conversations are a little bit different than mine. But I tried to explain to me why it was okay for me to have done what I did. And I tried to convince myself that what I did was not that wrong and that nobody really got hurt. And I tried to explain to me that what I did was okay because everybody does that. I'm just doing what comes naturally. You see, to suppress is to tell myself to shut up or to distract myself with entertainment. But here's what I don't naturally do. I don't do something wrong left to myself and then naturally meditate upon that and contemplate how bad it is and try to find relief and forgiveness in the proper way. The thing that people do, and this is universal among all of us, no matter how much knowledge of the Bible you have or don't, it is to suppress the truth through ungodliness. It is to change the subject on yourself. It is to be your own defense attorney. It is to medicate. I'm not a drinker, but I do other things to drown the truth of my crimes against God. I, I just, I, Lady Macbeth, I got to get the spots off my hands. I've got to, I got to do something to get, to get, get the, the, the sin that I've committed from coming to my brain. Some dance to remember, some dance to forget. This week I had a, a stomach virus. I'm fine now. In fact, I actually feel better now. But have you ever had a stomach virus? Then you know the definition of an attempt at suppression. When, 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 when your stomach starts to talk to your throat 
and says, here I come, and you say, uh-uh, nope, we're, we're going to stay down. You remain calm, close your eyes, go in a dark room, drink the ginger ale, take the Tums, just like hoping it's going to, hoping it's going to take a U-turn and go down. Well, that's what we do with our sins. Our, our sins are like coming to our heart and to our mind, and we just do everything we can to make those sins do a U-turn and go down. Like, we're not going to, we're not going to come up, we're not going to confess that. We're going to keep it suppressed. What we need, I don't want to be too graphic here, but we need the Holy Spirit to gag us so that we will spew this awful sin rather than spending our lives trying to suppress the unrighteousness. What is it that we are trying to suppress? Well, it says that they suppress the truth. Oh, my. What is the truth? Well, first of all, God is truth. He in and of himself is truth. His attributes are true, including his righteousness, his justice, and his wrath. The Spirit is the Spirit of truth. Jesus is the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. The Bible is the truth. The gospel is the truth. The truth that I am bad is the truth. And guess what else? Truth is truth. And one of the ways that people suppress truth is to say that there is no truth. And so if all truth is relative, then you can suppress the truth by saying the truth doesn't exist. So there's no right and there's no wrong. The active, relentless suppression of truth is something that every human being can relate to. Now again, you might have walked into church today with a seminary degree. You know what I'm talking about. Or this might be the first time you have ever walked into a church in your life. You know what I'm talking about. This is us. There are some people that will admit that there is a problem. But what will they will do, rather than dealing with it the way that God has prescribed, is they will say, ah, pastor, you have described me, and now I'm going to take care of this problem. To whom do I write the check? Where do I sign up for my community service? I am going to do good so as to cover the sin in my heart. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. My father was witnessing to a man on his deathbed trying to get him to believe in Christ, and the man said, don't worry about me, Charlie. I'm a philanthropist. Here's the scary thing, and that is that the more one suppresses the truth, the better they get at it. When your conscience is soft, it's really tough to wrestle the truth to the ground, but like anything else, you work at it, you're going to improve. And the scary thing is when you improve at hardening your conscience and it becomes seared and you fear nothing at all, and I'm talking about the feel nothing at all to the point of leave the gun, bring the cannolis. Like, like it's just, this is, I can sleep, you know, I can just go to sleep at night. Nothing bothers me. I don't even feel it anymore. When you don't even feel it anymore, when like you're not even working to suppress it anymore, that's when you're in big trouble. Year after year, you go on suppressing the truth. The older you get, the harder your heart is going to get. I say all of this to say the wrath of God makes sense 
in light of not only how we sin, but how we continually sin to cover up our sin. All we are is sin. Sin is not what you do. Sin is who you are. It is all of you. Yeah, the wrath of God makes sense. Let me put it in perspective. Let's just say that you only commit three sins a day. You commit more than that, but let's say you commit three sins a day. Well, that's over a thousand sins in a year. And God knows about those sins. And let's say for the sake of argument, you live to be 70 and then you die and you go before God to be judged. You're walking in with 70,000 crimes that you have committed. What kind of a judge would God be to acquit a criminal who has well in excess of 70,000 offenses? You see, the wrath of God makes sense and it is revealed now. It will be revealed in the judgment day and throughout eternity. But let's just say for the sake of argument today, you don't buy my argument and you cannot accept the concept of the wrath of God. Let me tell you that your denial of it does not change the reality of it. To be convinced of it is going to take more than my persuasion standing behind this desk for an hour. You're going to need the Holy Spirit to reveal truth to you. And when he does, you will tremble at the law you have spurned. And you will frantically run for relief and forgiveness. And so in the time that remains, I want to tell you where to find it. I want to make this really simple for you. Somehow, God the Holy Spirit, in the last 55 minutes, has convinced you that you are guilty and that the wrath of God is upon you. And you've been told during the sermon that what you must carry into heaven to be judged before God is a record of perfection, and you're smart enough to know that you don't have one and you can't achieve one. Let me tell you how you can have your sins forgiven. Let me tell you how you can get that perfect record. And it starts on Palm Sunday when a humble man by the name of Jesus hopped on a donkey and rode into a city to the cries of Hosanna. And then five days later, he was placed on a cross and he was murdered. And with that, your sins went to that cross with him. And there upon that cross, he died for your sins and he paid for all of your sins. And Jesus Christ bore the aggressive complete, unbridled, full wrath of God on the cross which you deserve. Jesus Christ died for your sins and the price that he had to pay was death through the wrath of God. God the Father killed Christ the Son. But Jesus, after dying, did not stay in the grave. He came out of the grave and he is alive today. And today he is a wonderful, merciful Savior. And he can save you, and he alone can save you from the wrath of God if you will cry out to him, if you will repent, if you will believe in him, if you will cast yourself upon him, if you will run to him, if you will look to Jesus Christ, if you will believe in him, you will not perish, but you will have everlasting life. You who are lost, you need a savior, and Jesus is the only one who can save you from the wrath of God. And finally, for those of you who have experienced relief from the wrath of God, you have been saved. I think you need to know that it's good every once in a while to be reminded about the pit from which the Lord drug you out. I think it is good to remember that you were 
an object of wrath, a vessel of wrath, just like the others, but that God had mercy upon you. I think it's good every once in a while to remember how close to the edge you were, and, and it is good to remember every once in a while that you were one heartbeat away from an eternal hell, but God in mercy wouldn't let you go there. And he kept you alive, and, and he gave you a gospel preacher. He gave you a gospel presentation, and, and he gave you conviction in your heart, and he gave you the Holy Spirit, and he gave you Jesus, and he gave you life. And, and so we, I think, will be more in love with this Jesus who saved us from the wrath of God if we think about the wrath of God. We're never going to experience it. We're never going to know it. But we would have if he had not done this for us. So it's good every once in a while to remember the wrath of God. It makes us love Jesus more. Amen? Amen. All right. So where are we here? 18 down, 425 to go. Uh, God loves you. I hope you haven't forgotten that. Let's pray. Precious Father in heaven, I have to be people under the sound of my voice who are, Lord, currently under your wrath. And I would pray in Jesus' name, Lord, that you would, uh, by your mercy, Lord, bring them to life at this time, cause them to know the, the, the horrors of hell, and point them to Jesus. Save them, Lord, so that they would never know your wrath. And then, Lord, I also know that there are many here today who have been rescued. Lord, help us please never to take that for granted, but help us, God, in Jesus' name to, uh, Lord, uh, love you and to love you more as a result of this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.